Hello everybody, Alicia here and today is a great day because I have got somebody called Mandy Gurney uh, joining me to make this podcast. Mandy is the founder of Mill Pond, uh, which is a company that helps parents help children to sleep. So today is all about sleep and uh, Mandy's a registered nurse, she's a midwife, she's a health visitor, she delivers sleep workshops to NHS staff and she's mentored NHS Trust in setting up their own clinics. She's the author of the best-selling book Teach Your Child to Sleep and the Bedtime Book and she's worked alongside Professor Robert Winston and she regularly delivers corporate sleep workshops for the likes of Google, Citibank and Barclays and she works really I think from birth right the way up to 16 in terms of sleep problems so I can't think of anybody better to join me hello Mandy and thank you hi Alicia well thank you thank you for inviting me it's great to uh, to meet you and to to chat about this really really important subject it is isn't it I think sleep's finally getting quite a lot of news in the headlines I think it was something that we ignored for a long time but it seems to have leapt to the top of the agenda right now Yes, finally. I mean, I've been working in the world of sleep for about 25 years. So I've known for a very long time how important sleep is. And uh, it's music to my ears when all this new research is coming out, sort of backing up what we had a kind of gut feel about. But um, finally, we've got the real hardcore evidence to actually support how parents and people, children, young people were feeling. So, you know, it's just just great. Um, absolutely. So before we get into all of the, all of the, because I'd love to talk a little bit about the, what the research is showing us at the moment, but just tell us, how did you get into the world of sleep? Well, um, as you said in the introduction, as a health professional, so I'd been a midwife, I was a health visitor for about 15 years. So when I um, had my first child, I was thinking, wow, I've got everything I need to be able to um, do all the things that I should do as a parent and sleep is going to be a piece of cake because you know I know all of this information but what I wasn't expecting was a child who had very severe reflux and very severe um, food allergies and he also had asthma and eczema and he was a very allergic child and that was 27 years ago um, all those years ago people didn't talk about those kinds of issues and and uh, I remember talking to my um, my own health visitor, my own GP, talking to my colleagues, um, and I worked in a multidisciplinary team with lots of different health professionals, but nobody knew anything about sleep. They didn't know a huge amount about allergies and reflux either, really, to be honest. So um, my son basically didn't sleep, and he did a lot of crying, and I think we both cried together on numerous occasions. And I eventually went back to work and um, it was actually far easier. I mean, I hate to say this, but it was actually far easier being at work than it was being at home looking after a baby who just didn't sleep. And um, it made me think about other parents who don't have access to the kind of information, training, health professionals that I did and I was suffering. So what could I do to help other parents? And, And so I then set up a sleep clinic within the NHS, which I ran for about five years. And then on the back of that, a colleague and I set up Millpond 20 years ago. So it was very much sort of based on our own experiences, our training, 
and um, being parents and, and knowing how important it is to get good sleep. So yeah. in a nutshell, that's, <laughs> that's how I got there. I bet it was a lot longer journey, but thank you. yeah, definitely. And um, I imagine that you started off perhaps dealing more with the little ones, but now you're, as I said, the, the service extends right the way up to 16. So teen tips, the kind of clue is in the name, I guess, that this is the, the age group that we're particularly focused on. Um, and what are you seeing in terms of patterns of sleep for this age group? What age would you say... I mean, I always say adolescents can start really anywhere from eight, but is, I don't know if that's the same in terms of sleep. So it'd be interesting to hear your perspective. Yeah, you're right. It's much younger than, than um, a lot of people would imagine. And a lot of it is tied up with puberty. So some children are starting inward signs of puberty. They're not seeing parents may not be seeing it externally, but there's changes happening already within um, that child's body that has a direct impact on their sleep and we can talk about that in a little bit more detail but the main problem is really falling asleep and getting enough sleep as well so it's um, children who are who are falling asleep incredibly late for lots and lots of different reasons and then having to get up in the morning to try and get to school or college and just living in this continuous state of sleep deprivation and then trying to catch up at the weekend but the problem is they've not slept long enough in the week um, and they're building a very large sleep debt by the time they get to the weekends and so it's just not enough time to try and pay back some of their sleep debt over the weekend and so they're just continually living in this kind of foggy sleepy stage um, and, and not even maybe even recognizing it because it becomes the norm after a while to feel that way. Yeah, which would make education and all kinds of things really difficult. So if we rewind to, you were talking about the impact of puberty on sleep. Shall we start there? Yeah, so um, as I say, some children as young as nine um, can have changes in the melatonin production. So what we know is that um, the start of puberty, melatonin time, it, um, production is shifted later and can be as much as two hours later and it's something called a phased delay and it's going to happen to every single one of us and it starts quite young it hits a peak at about 18 or 19 so it lasts for quite a long time and then slowly slowly it um, changes so that by the time we're sort of in our early to mid 20s we, we go back to having melatonin produced at what you call a more sort of normal time but I don't entirely know why that happens. Um, it's thought that maybe going way back in time when we were hunters and gatherers, the fittest and the strongest that were this sort of age group would go out hunting overnight and the rest of the uh, group would be sleeping. And we all um, have slightly different sleep patterns and um, some of us are larks and some of us are owls and some of us are sort of along that spectrum. And it's really think, think about survival of a group living out in the wilds. It wouldn't have been a very good for survival if everybody slept at the same time. So we need people to have different kinds of sleep patterns to sort of work within a group setting. But of course, we don't live in that world anymore. We live in a modern world. And so in terms of the modern world, the people that fit in most with that are locks. So those that go to bed earlier and wake early tend to fit more into the modern world. If you are an owl in terms of your chronotype with that kind of sleep pattern, 
you're more likely to have less sleep and more likely to have weight issues associated with that as well. So owls don't do quite so well within our kind of current modern way of living as larks do. And the problem with this phase delay with this kind of age group is they're turning more into an owl kind of sleep pattern. Okay, so the phase delay is that is that kind of change in the circadian rhythms. That's what you're that's what we're talking about, is it? Yeah, it's basically a change in when melatonin is produced. So melatonin is a sleep hormone that drives sleep onset. So it means that sleep onset, the time we fall asleep, just shifts later. So often parents may think that their child is being maybe difficult and challenging at bedtime, resisting going to sleep. And then of course it's hard in the morning to get them out of bed and parents may think, oh, my child's so lazy, I just can't get them out of bed in the morning. But a lot of it could be linked with their hormones and the change in melatonin production, but also what kind of sleep pattern they naturally have as well. So that's something for parents to think about. So the chronotype is your, is your whether you're the owl or the, or the lark, is that right? Yeah, yes, that's right. And you inherit your chronotype it's passed down to us uh, via a particular gene in the same way as loads of other characteristics and you can look at your parents and try and work out roughly what your chronotype might be so if you've got two owl parents it's very high chance that your children will be owls two lark parents very high chance um, that your children will be larks as well. So even us as adults, we can maybe look at our own children or our own parents and work out kind of what the chronotype will be for our family. So it's really important when you're thinking about your sleep for your children is what would their chronotype be? So not comparing your child to your friend's children, but looking within your own family to see what kind of sleep pattern is sort of what you would expect within your family setup mm. and of course that later that phase delay is incredibly difficult working around the school day when they just have to be up and out you know I mean, there's a lot of kids that are getting up 6 37 and if you can't get to sleep till 11 30 midnight you're gonna you are going to be really sleep deprived by the end of the week and I know that yes, there's that, yeah, there's been, because I always say to parents, you know, for goodness sake, let them have a big lie-in at the weekend. But I'm not sure maybe, uh, you know, is that the right advice or not, actually? Or does that just show, throw the whole sleep cycle out even more for the following week? Yeah, I mean, it's a very good point, because if they are that sleep-deprived, they do need to try and catch up on some sleep. But generally what we say is try to be up before midday. That's quite a good kind of rule to have. So what happens is if they carry on sleeping beyond that, then bedtime just shifts even later. Mm. So what often happens, and the same for us, especially if we have an owl kind of chronotype, your body, your body clock shifts much faster naturally if you're an owl anyway. So if we go to bed later on a Friday night because you think, oh, it's the weekend, it doesn't matter if I stay up a bit later, and then you have a lion on Saturday morning, Saturday night, you might go to bed even later, wake up later still on Sunday morning. And then Sunday night, you're thinking, hmm, I've got work in the morning. I'd better make sure I get to bed at a sensible time. You get into bed, your body clock has already shifted. It's drifted. Your body clock can drift very quickly. 
And so you get into bed at what you would say, oh, you know, this is a good time to make sure I'm having enough sleep so that by the time the alarm goes off, I'm well refreshed and ready to start Monday morning work. But you can't get to sleep because your body clock has already drifted on. So it's really important to think about that drift and you can create what's called a social jet lag living in a different time zone to the rest of your kind of community and, and the environment around you. So some, some young people have sort of shifted their body clock so far that they're sort of halfway across Europe in yeah. terms of the time zone that they're living in. And that's, I mean, that's incredible how quickly, so literally just two nights, two or three nights, and you can get that drift, like you say. I mean, that's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, for some of us, not everybody. If you're a lark, it doesn't shift quite so quickly. But if you're an owl, I mean, the good thing about being an owl is you can go traveling, well, when, when we can travel, traveling around the world, and your water clock is going to shift and adapt much easier to local time zones. But um, if you're in one time zone, it becomes more tricky. Gosh. It's extraordinary, isn't it? So back to what the latest research is showing. What 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 do you think would be useful for, for to share with parents on what you're hearing coming through now? Well, I mean, there's a lot of tips that we need to think about in terms of what helps us to sleep better. And in, actually, if you put them into one category, it's called sleep hygiene. Mm-hmm. So having really good sleep hygiene encompasses all the activities and the things we need to think about that we do in the lead up to bed, our bedroom environment as well, all the things that help us to go to sleep. And part of that is avoiding screens. So as we know, one of the biggest issues for this kind of age group is social media, mobile phones, gaming consoles. Um, computers so they can really interfere with our ability to fall asleep and what research has shown is obviously the light from the screens can have an impact on our body's ability to produce melatonin as we know it's a hormone to help with sleep onset but now you can get filters to go on screens so there's not such an issue with the light because we can do something about that But now it's the actual content. And what we know from research is it's actually the content itself, which may be sort of stimulating that young person's brain again at that time of the night when we're wanting them to go to sleep. And that was some some research that was done only a couple of years ago, looking at the social media impact on young people's sleep. And it can start with children as young as 11. So it's, as parents, thinking about early intervention, getting into good habits with their children before it becomes a huge challenge. So it's having a bit of a family rule that particularly things like mobile phones, laptops, stay out of bedrooms because this is where the issue lies. And what they found with the research particularly was students who had those devices in their phones were the ones at greater risk of problems falling asleep and they were much more likely to wake up in the night, start sending um, messages to friends, start going back on their devices in the middle of the night as well. So their sleep was very interrupted and then in the daytime they were sort of suffering the consequences of, of sleep deprivation. So obviously that's one area to look at. 
and parents need to set an example as well so you know, if you're asking your children and young people not to have these devices in their bedroom and then you sit there with yours and it's very difficult so you know as a family rule it's a pretty good thing to have and is there a and then the other time is there an amount of time before you're trying to go to sleep so i always say you know try not to have it for at least 40 minutes before you actually want to go to sleep preferably an hour is there any research yeah an, an hour really an hour i would say minimum of an hour so um yeah i would i would say whatever bedtime is an hour before that phones go on charge in a different room mm-hmm. uh, devices and if you can avoid having them in the bedroom in the first place with younger children set the precedent earlier it's very difficult to remove these devices once they're in place mm-hmm. that can be yeah. quite a big challenge once the horse has bolted yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so you, I remember when we first started talking, you were talking about um, something about a study that had been done in Japan. And I wondered if you could tell us a bit about that, because I thought that sounded like re- it was going to be really interesting. Yeah, it, it, I think the biggest thing um, when you've got young people is trying to find something to motivate them to make change. And we all, we all struggle with that. You know, it's not just young people. It, it, it's very difficult to, to make changes to your lifestyle, particularly if you don't feel that there's a problem with it. And um, I think it's become, it can be quite a big challenge if the lifestyle change we're asking people to make seem too onerous and, and there's too many factors to consider. And I think it, it, what, what we know is it is very hard to motivate this sort of age group particularly to make these changes because in, in their eyes, you know, they'd much rather stay up gaming or, or on their phone. So, you know, how do you motivate people to make that change? And this is what studies have been looking at is how can young people be motivated? And this particular study in Japan, which was which was about three or four years ago, was just identifying three areas to change. So not making it too onerous a task. And what they found was that they had much better and longer lasting results with this age group sleep patterns. So um, teachers would lecture the students on uh, sleep. So they would all have a lecture on sleep and then they were asked to fill in um, a questionnaire, a lifestyle questionnaire, looking at their habits, particularly around the lead up to bedtime, what they did at bedtime. But then they were only asked to change three of those habits. So they didn't have to change everything, it was just three. So it could be something like avoiding TV screens in the bedroom. It could be looking at bedroom environment to make sure it was dark and, and comfortable. And it might also be making sure that they go to bed by by midnight each night. So just choosing three small areas to address. And when they did that, they found that students were much more likely to stick to those things. And actually improvements lasted beyond the study itself. So six months later, they found there were still very good improvements with those students sleeping, falling asleep much faster, and they slept much longer. So it's, it's trying to sort of think about small changes that you know is going to be the best way to go really and actually what you're saying there very much ties in with what I've always thought working with that particular age group is if you can give them a sense of choice and control and help them understand why something might be worth having a go at they're much more likely to engage and to carry on engaging so it's interesting that that's coming through in that area as well yeah 
Yes, yeah, and, and other studies have shown where they have um, identified with young people what it's like to their bodies when they're not getting good sleep. So they've sort of gone through all the different areas, the impact of sleep deprivation on their bodies. So again, it's having that level of understanding will motivate, hopefully, them to sort of see this in a more positive light. I mean, the kind of thing that we would talk to young people about would be maybe um, how a lack of sleep has an impact on what you eat, the kind of food choices you make, and the impact of sleep deprivation on obesity and weight gain, or it might be on sports performance, or it might be on how much um, it affects your memory capacity. So it's trying to identify the one area that is meaningful to that young person, particularly if maybe they're very into sports. So it'd be talking about how much it improves your sports performance. So it's trying to find an area that is meaningful to that particular person. And there's always something about sleep because it impacts on every part of our body and our mind. Um, so there's always going to be something you can find that, that you can focus on for that particular person. So even if they're telling you the only thing they really care about is gaming, you can, you can twist it away from that because actually even with that, your focus is not going to be as good if you haven't had enough sleep, is it? Exactly. And your reaction time is much, much slower and much less accurate if you haven't slept well. Great. So we finally got a reason why even gate late night gaming is not a great plan. <laughs> so any other studies or, or research coming out that you think would be interesting? Yeah, I mean, I think an interesting one for parents, actually, is that um, one particular research showed that actually children and young people where the parents set the bedtime were much more likely to have more sleep. So even though we might think it seems a little bit, um, you know, children are too old for the parents to say, this is a set bedtime for you. Even students who are sort of 13 to 18 years old, their sleep improved when their parents set the bedtime for them. And that would be in the weekdays, but at the weekends without a set bedtime, what they found from this particular study was their sleep patterns reverted back to the kind of sleep patterns that um, students had when they didn't have a set bedtime. So it shows how quickly, without that guidance from the parents, um, their sleep sort of reverted to going to sleep late and waking late. And should that be flexible in terms of if you know that your child is a lark or if you know that your child is, is an owl, do you adjust the sleep time or is there a kind of, you know, would there be an average time that you would say, right, you're 15, this is the time you should be going to bed? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends what time they've got to get up in the morning. So whether you're a lark or an owl, it's looking at what time do they have to be out of bed to be ready in time to get off to school or college? That's always going to be your starting point. Um, obviously, we know larks are much more likely to be able to get up more easier than an owl. Um, so owls probably need to get into the light in the morning more than larks um, because they need um, that bright light to stop their melatonin production. And then it's 
moving back to set the bedtime. So we know that this age group should really be having nine hours sleep most nights. Mm -hmm. So whatever time they have to get up in the morning is tracking back to what time they need to go to sleep at bedtime to enable them to get as close to their nine hours as possible. So if you've got a lock child, it's not such a problem when they come into this phase delay. When you have an owl child, it becomes more of an issue. So owls need to be very vigilant about regulating their body clock. And making sure that, again, we talked about that drift, that it doesn't drift. You have to anchor your body clock with a set time to go to sleep, but more importantly, a set time to wake up. So owls probably need to be a little bit more regimented and parents may need to give more guidance if they've got an owl kind of child than if they've got a lock kind of child. They're going to get more resistance with an owl as well because it doesn't naturally sit with you to want to get up that um, early in the morning. It's very, very difficult. So um, it's it, lighting and discipline, probably the two things. Lighting and discipline. So nice and dark in the night and nice and light in the, in the morning. Yeah. And being very disciplined about your going to bedtime, but waking up time. Yeah. And um, uh, right now we're in the middle of... Uh, corona nightmare and um, and what i'm hearing is a lot of parents saying that their teens are either either having even more disrupted sleep or that actually a lot of them are having really uh, vivid or or frightening dreams that's something that you you've heard yeah it de- and it's happening with adults as well actually and um it's interesting you know, a lot of it is because we're getting more REM sleep rapid eye movement sleep which is the sleep we have in the morning and that's when you have your dreaming sleep. So you've got more opportunity to dream because you're having more of that early morning sleep because you're not having to get up. So they're not being woken up by an alarm. They're just naturally sleeping later through and having more of that rapid eye movement sleep. And you're more likely to remember your dreams if they're vivid. So that's why you're much more aware of your dreams. And if you're a a little bit stressed by something or something worries you, your dreams become more vivid naturally as well anyway. So it's like a combination of all of those factors, really. But it makes sense why it's happening. Totally. Yeah. 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 So if you were, um, if you were, you know, working with somebody, for example, you know, are there particular foods that you should avoid before bedtime? Because I think food and and sleep are pretty closely linked. I mean, you've talked about the impact of if you're an owl, you're more likely to have weight problems. Um, and I think I've got a bit of an idea of why that might be, but it would be really interesting to hear your perspective. Yeah, so so if we're not getting enough sleep, there's lots of changes that happen within the brain. The neural pathways alter. So there's quite a few reasons for that. One is the hunger hormones. Um, Leptin and ghrelin are out of balance when we're tired. So we feel hungrier more often. Um, And we also, when we eat, we don't feel so satisfied because of those altering hormones. So it means that you're more likely to eat more often and eat more food. So that's one thing. Also, the kind of food choices that we make alter when we're tired. So you're more likely to choose the unhealthy type foods, the sugary, fatty, salty kind of food. Whereas when you're getting good sleep, you're much more likely to want to sort of have the fruit and vegetables. 
So again, neural pathways change, making us choose different types of food. You're awake longer, you've got more opportunity to eat as well. Mm-hmm. And when you're tired, you might be craving food that gives you more energy. So getting up in the evening or late, um, even at night, going and snacking. So you're snacking on foods that are probably high in sugar and fat. You're um, not recognizing when you've eaten enough. So all of those variables. And then being tired, you haven't got the motivation or the energy to go and exercise. So you might be spending more time in front of screens, more time gaming. So then you get into this vicious circle of then going to bed late because you're up gaming, shifting body clock. So all of these things lead towards issues with increased waist circumference, body fat percentage, raised BMI, um, all linked back to lack of sleep. In fact, there was um, some research done a few years ago, and they actually called it the duvet diet. Oh, so, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, an easy way to stay slim. Just sleep. <laughs> sleep a lot more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I could go with And that it may one. be, it might be also you're having caffeine to try and keep you awake as well. And we know that caffeine can last for maybe five or seven hours for some of us, a half-life of caffeine. So really, you shouldn't really be drinking caffeine much later than sort of two or three o'clock in the afternoon, depending on your bedtime, um, because it just stays in your system. And, and for some of us, we're more sensitive to it than others. And obviously, sugar is the other thing. But there is a group of foods which are healthy to have at bedtime, um, and, and they contain high levels of amino acid called tryptophan. And, and there are some studies that show it can help with sleep onset. Tryptophan is converted to serotonin, and serotonin is the precursor to melatonin. So if you want to choose a healthy snack in the evening, something high in chicken, turkey, a banana, some milk, combined with a complex carbohydrate, like some wholemeal bread, um, an oat biscuit, bowl of porridge, those things, not only are they healthy, but they may help with sleep onset as well. And there's a bit of a question mark about it, but they're healthy choices anyway. And I've certainly come across parents who, who have, because you can't get it, I don't think, here, over the counter, certainly not, but mel- have, have bought melatonin in the States and places abroad and bought it back. What, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of melatonin, it, there is, the only way you'll know whether you have sufficient levels of melatonin is to have saliva tests. And obviously, we're not going to go down that route. Um, there are a group of um, young um, adults and children with conditions such as autism, ADHD, have low levels of melatonin. So they may need melatonin um, um, medication. And that would have to come via paediatrician. So in this country, you need to see your GP and your GP refers you to a paediatrician and that decision is then made. Mm. But even so, if, you're, if a person is taking melatonin, they still need to be conscious of sleep hygiene and thinking about the lead up to sleep because it's not like taking sleeping tablets. Mm. It just helps with sleep onset. So I would say the majority of people don't need it. Mm-hmm. It's looking at your sleep hygiene. It's looking at having a regulated body clock. It's not going to act like a, a sleeping tablet. 
Okay. And another thing that I've come across, and only quite recently, was this idea of weighted blankets. Yeah, so weighted blankets are um, it, actually it, they're becoming more and more popular and uh, adults are using them, children can, you can use them for children as well. So the idea is it's a bit like having a nice cuddle. It um, helps to trigger your parasympathetic nervous system, which is your rest and digest. And it's, um, it's called deep pressure touch. So it's that kind of feel that you get when somebody gives you a nice hug or a cuddle. It helps to relax you and it has been sort of, it can help to calm you. So it's quite good to have one on you on the lead up to bedtime, maybe sitting watching a TV program or just relaxing and reading. If, if you're finding it really hard to switch off, your brain is racing at bedtime or you feel quite anxious about things, can really help to calm the body and calm the mind leading up to bedtime. Um, and if you're uh, an older person or um, an adult or young person, then you can have it on the bed overnight. For a younger child, we would say have it on to fall asleep with, but then after the child's been asleep for about 20 minutes, then remove the blanket. So as I say, for sort of teenagers plus, the, the weighted blanket can stay on all night but it has been shown to help with sleep onset and um, a sort of um, more relaxed kind of form of sleep overnight and just out of interest how heavy is it it, it can't well you, you need to go for the lightest one that you can get away with but definitely no more than 10 percent of your body weight oh wow so quite heavy actually yeah, they are quite, which is why really when you have a younger, you mustn't use them for children under three. They are definitely not recommended for, for younger children. But even then, there are certain criteria that parents need to be aware of. So the child needs to be able to remove the blanket themselves mm -hmm. because they can make some children feel hot. So the child needs to be able to take it off if they get hot. They need to be able to move around freely underneath it. It should only be placed on top of the bed. They shouldn't be wrapped around in it. It should just be sitting on top of them, um, sort of a little bit like um, like an old-fashioned quilt that we used to have way back in time, something like that that sits on top of them. Um, but, yeah, they are becoming very, very popular, actually. Mm. Well, maybe we'll be able to put a link up as to where one could actually find one. Yes, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so. I, I mean, I'm fascinated. I could talk to you all afternoon, but I think probably better come towards the end. If you were going to give your your top three tips to parents um, to help their children sleep, what what would they be? Well, I think we've sort of touched on a lot of them, but um, the, the most important thing for everybody, not just for children, is to have a bit more structure to your sleep patterns. And like I said, you know, you can easily drift with your sleep, so it's having a fairly set bedtime, a fairly set waking up time. If you've got um, a young person, then definitely trying to make sure that they don't sleep past midday if they're going to have a lion, particularly at the moment under the uh, with all the coronavirus issues. People aren't working with their regular schedules, so trying to get them up um, no later than, than midday and trying to go to, to bed no later than midnight. Um, screens at least an hour before sleep, putting them away and having a calm, quiet lead up to bedtime in dim light. We don't want big conversations, confrontations, discussions happening just before bedtime. 
So think about, we often say to parents, think about how you would want the environment to be if you were going for a lovely massage. Try and recreate that dim lighting, quiet, relaxing, bit of reading, and then drifting off to sleep. Oh, that's brilliant. Mandy, thank you so much. Um, I think people will find it really, really interesting. So thank you for taking the time to come and talk to me. And um, we'll make sure that the details are, are in the website so people um, know where to look for advice. But um, thank you very, very much. And um, let's hope we can all meet in real time soon. Yes, that would be amazing. Well, thank you. And um, we do have a fact sheet actually on our website. If um, if parents want to have a look at that, it's a free fact sheet on this particular age group, teen sleep, with all the tips that I've talked about, the melatonin shift. Um, so they may wish to, to have a look at that. That's great. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks, Mandy. Bye-bye. Bye. Take care.